They say he never had to practice. That's what they say. Baptized, Johannes Chrysostomus Wolfgangus Amadeus Theophilus Mozart, the musical prodigy was an 18th century legend. He was putting together notes of harpsichord at the same age that many of his peers were trying to string together pairs of words. He had composed his first concerto by the age of five, and by 13, after hearing it only one time, he wrote the entire score of Gregorio Allegri's Miserere from memory, and almost flawlessly. Mozart's talent to recognize pitch and to pick apart musical notes, only to string them back together, was practically unprecedented. Historians of music say he was born with this skill, and it's probably true. Mozart didn't need those 10,000 hours to master the piano or the symphony. He didn't seem to need to practice. But you might. Now where did this 10,000 hour threshold come from? What's the evidence for it? And if you spend that much time committing yourself to your practice, will you then become an expert? In this week's episode of the Brainwaves podcast, the 10,000 hour rule, where it comes from, what it means, and what it doesn't mean. I'm Jim Siegler. Don't go anywhere. I know what you're thinking. Right now, you're wiping that sweat off your brow and you're saying to yourself, phew, I only have to work 10,000 more hours in order to become an expert at, well, whatever it is that you want to be an expert in. Only 10,000 more hours. Just kidding. But let's convert those to resident physician units, working, let's say, 80 hours a week for 48 weeks a year, four weeks you're going to sacrifice to vacation, and that means you'll get to the 10,000-hour threshold in just over two and a half years of residency. But that's not really how it works. Saying you'll become an expert after only 10,000 hours of a practice is a dramatic oversimplification by people who only read the cliff notes to Malcolm Gladwell. During those 12-hour workdays of residency, you're also losing an hour or two to lunch, to snacking, and if you have time, maybe some dinner, probably half an hour to an hour of walking around the hospital trying to pretend like you're not lost, half an hour on the phone, probably on hold or navigating through a prior authorization. You lose another two hours a day listening to patients tell you absolutely nothing relevant to why they're seeing you or how they could be sick. Let's say then you lose another one to two hours typing up your notes on a computer, documenting the patient's mother's history of high blood pressure and a cousin with glaucoma. Then there's about half an hour or so of you presenting your patient to your attending, taking the time to acknowledge his mother's hypertension and cousin's vision problems. Another 30 minutes looking up medical record data, 20 minutes finding the right article and up to date, 20 minutes with the computer screen freezing on you or restarting, or you having to log on to a new terminal because... Well, your senior resident wants you to get off their computer. 30 minutes are lost to helping your med student perform all the elements of a thorough physical exam. 15 minutes in the bathroom, 20 minutes texting, 20 minutes reading the highlights from NPR, 15 minutes on Reddit, and 5 on Bumble. Plus all the remaining time during the day when you wish you could be sleeping, or eating, or sleep eating. That amazing skill of combining two necessary activities into one so you don't feel like you're wasting your time. Suddenly, your 12-hour workday has become one hour and five minutes of dedicated, deliberate clinical skill building. Those two and a half years that it could have taken you to become an expert in medicine? Well, now it's going to take you three decades to reach 10,000 hours. It's crushing. I know. But you know that you need to get to that 10,000-hour point in your career because you are committed. 
You want to help your patients. You need to be an expert for them. So you suck it up and you push through. But three decades is an eternity of training. How long do you really need? Using chess as an example, and one could argue that the complexities of chess and the complexities of medicine are nothing alike, some of the earliest reports on expertise indicate that no single player attained the level of grandmaster, or international chess master, after fewer than 10 years of preparation. Bobby Fischer, the child prodigy, achieved an international reputation just one year shy of this. A 10-year commitment also appears to be the duration necessary to become fluent in another language, or to become an expert musician. This 10-year rule has been repeatedly demonstrated and promoted by American scientists Herbert Simon and William Chase, and the evidence predating Simon and Chase and following their seminal works is pretty compelling. Take, for instance, a study that was done in 1936, which looked at 120 top scientists and 120 top poets and laureates from the 19th century. The average age at which the scientists published their first work was about 25, and for poets or other authors it was 24. For each group, it would be another 10 years before they published their, quote, greatest work. The scientists were 35, and the writers were 34. But we should acknowledge that, for many of these, quote, expert contributors to science and literature, the preparation for their careers far preceded their first publications in their 20s. They probably started preparing for their careers by their mid-teens. And if they were truly child prodigies, as most of these top scientists and poets were, maybe even younger than that. So 10 years is really just the minimum. And that's for 10 years of commitment. Who came up with this 10,000 hour rule? And for this part, we're gonna talk a little bit about statistics. The original data for the 10,000 hour rule, which is now popularized by Malcolm Gladwell from his book, Outliers, actually references a nearly 50 page study from 1933 by Erickson and colleagues. If you've read Gladwell's book, then you get the idea that you can become an expert after 10,000 hours of practice for whatever skill it is you want to achieve. But in the original 1933 study involving 40 German violinists, it doesn't really support this claim. By the time these violinists turned 20 years old, the most talented musicians had accrued on average about 10,000 hours of deliberate practice over their young musical career. The, quote, good violinists had accrued about 7,800 hours, and the least talented 20-year-olds had committed only about 46 hours to practicing, on average. Here's where Gladwell got it wrong. Statistically, saying that the average duration of violin practice to achieve expertise is not the same as the minimum duration of violin practice. A mean of 10,000 hours among expert violinists means that half of those expert violinists didn't even reach the 10,000-hour minimum. And among those violinists who only reached the level of good, who averaged hardly even 8,000 hours of practice, there are probably a large number of them who committed well over 10,000 hours. But did they achieve excellence? No. So if you want to achieve excellence and you want to hone your practice, there are a few critical ingredients, and these are the following. To keep it as simple as possible, I've limited it to three major factors for this talk. Motivation, feedback, and repetition. Motivation. It's probably the most cited prerequisite for optimal learning. Have you ever tried to get a dog to roll over without giving him a treat? No, you're not an idiot, and neither is the dog. The animal has to be motivated to do the trick. And even with all the motivation in the world, 
Sometimes they still won't learn the trick. Kingsley still hasn't yet, my dog, and he's three years old. And just as a dog needs a reason to drive him to perform the trick, so does the human violinist in preparing for a concerto. Reward. Okay, maybe not reward, but certainly feedback. In the absence of feedback, of knowing that you're doing something correct or accurately, there's no guarantee for improvement. You cannot tell that you're getting closer to your goal or that there could be a way to improve your performance without at least a third-party bystander. Imagine placing 1,000 arterial catheters, and during every procedure, you happen to be cannulating a vein, not the artery. Unless somebody's next to you saying, hey, that's not an artery, then you're never going to become an expert at placing an A-line. You'll definitely become an expert at placing peripheral lines, but only by accident, not your goal. Repetition. You've heard that practice makes perfect. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes performance. And you're only going to perform as well as you practice. And you only practice well when it's deliberate. And your practice will only improve when you're given that feedback. So if you keep on practicing deliberately with intention, with concentrated effort and focus, and you do this over and over again, then maybe one day you'll become an expert. Maybe. Unfortunately, achievement's not an exact science. In a controlled environment, in the lab, where humans are treated like mice, even putting subjects through extended training, where they meet these three criteria, motivation, feedback, repetition, the highest level of performance is not guaranteed. In fact, according to a 2016 meta-analysis of 88 studies on deliberate practice across multiple modalities, sports, music, etc., only 12% of the variance in a subject's performance was the result of deliberate practice. 88% of that variance in talent remained unexplained. And in studies which evaluated the effect of deliberate practice on educational achievement, deliberate practice only accounted for 4% of the variability in performance. The remaining 96% probably had to do with stuff like your genetic makeup, being born Mozart, learning to snow ski at the same time that you're learning to walk, and eating all of your veggies. There's no single formula for perfection, and even with a single formula to guide your deliberate practice, it may only have a small overall impact in your performance. For each task, and for each person attempting that task, and for each situation in which a person is attempting that task at that time, achieving the highest rate of success must come from experimentation, trial and error with your technique. If one approach to practicing can only get you so far, try another, and then another. Here's what I mean by that. Consider a hypothetical experiment in which subjects are asked to memorize a series of numbers. 1, 8, 17, 3, 64, The normal adult digit span is 7 to 9 after single trial and error. But if the subjects are given an extended period of time to study those numbers in that particular order, the probability that they will remember those numbers will increase, and the digit span will grow. The subjects will remember more and more numbers with every minute that they get to practice on them. But this will only get you so far. You need to branch out and try other methods for encoding or retrieving these concepts in your mind, rather than just ordering them sequentially as they're given to you. And some people happen to be naturally talented with this. You could say that, like Mozart, they're born with it. 
but I don't want to end on a bad note and tell you that you can't be intelligent. Even memory skills can be hacked. For many experts in memory, they'll tell you that they organize random concepts like strings of non-sequential integers into a memory palace. But you don't have to be a memory expert to hack your own memory. Back in medical school, my roommate told me how he remembered everything he learns. How he organized antibiotic flowcharts, and the anatomy of the spleen, and pathophysiology, and all that stuff. The idea was that, when you take some singular concept you want to remember, and you assign a trait to it, or several traits, these traits should facilitate your encoding of that concept, because now it's so neatly packaged. And later, when you retrieve that concise, neat package, it comes back to the front of your mind along with all of those particular traits. Consider the clinical features of endocarditis, for example, and there are a lot. You could straight up memorize them, verbatim, fever, retinal hemorrhages called Roth spots, Janeway lesions, the non-tender nodules of the palms and soles, and the painful raised lesions called Osler's nodes, ischemic strokes and other septic emboli, splinter hemorrhages, anemia, and so on. It's a lot to remember when you're learning it for the first time. Instead, as a medical student, your first aid gives you an acronym. From Jane. F for fever, R for Rothspots, O for Osler's nodes, and so on. But that can only help you so long as you remember From Jane and that weird connection between From Jane and endocarditis. And it only helps you so long as you remember what each of those individual letters in the acronym stands for. The next level of memory encoding and retrieval involves a memory palace. You convert endocarditis into this tangible thing by giving it traits that are all kind of related, because all the features of endocarditis are related. For me, endocarditis is like the sauna from my local pool when I was a kid. The sauna is hot, and the heat reminds me that the patients with endocarditis have a fever. The seats are wooden and kind of broken down, so you have to be careful of splinter hemorrhages in your nail beds. In the sauna, there's an older guy. And he's a fancy older man with lots of money because, you know, he went to a sauna. So he's checking his smartphone and seeing what his Roth IRA is doing. Seeing Roth spots in the retina. And the hot stones in the room, when you touch them, you scream, oh, for Osler's notes. And the burn that's left on your palms leaves you with a painful raised red skin lesion. And if you stay in the sauna long enough, you get lightheaded, like people who are anemic. And it could get so bad that you might pass out from the heat. And there's your stroke symptom there. So you've created this mental map of something you know in which all the elements are related. And this map is analogous to the concept that you're trying to remember. And it's probably easier to remember the sauna metaphor than what everything in From Jane means. Or maybe you just like to memorize From Jane, which is fine too. There's a TED Talk back in 2012 that highlights the extremes of memory performance using memory palaces. In it, Joshua Foer, who was a science writer for NPR, and the winner of the U.S. Memory Championship from that year, yes, there is such a thing as a memory championship, he describes what he did to memorize the order of cards in a randomly shuffled 52-card deck in two minutes. You should listen to it if you haven't already, and I put a reference to it on the blog. It will blow your mind. In that contest with randomly sorted 52 cards, every card was transformed into a person, and the order of the cards told somewhat of a story. 
and that's how he was able to memorize the order in such a short period of time. But as we near the end of the show, as you'll recall, I said that using memory palaces is like hacking your memory. You're hijacking these multiple sensory modalities. The warmth of the sauna, the pain of those hot stones in your palms, the visual of that semi-nude man on his iPhone. You're hijacking all of these sensations in order to better encode the complexity of this information. Fever, Osler's notes, Roth spots. But it's just a hack. It's a trick. It's a playful attempt at honing your clinical skills. Leveraging this hack over time, using the forces of motivation, reward, and deliberate practice through repetition, you'll transform from that med student who's evaluating a patient in the ICU and thinking of an old, ugly man surrounded by steaming coals twiddling with his phone. And you'll become a young clinician who's evaluating that patient in the ICU and picking up on the subtle hints of the history in the exam, which inform your pretest probability that this patient may have endocarditis. Ultimately, 10,000 hours is not enough, especially for those of us who aren't the Mozarts or the Beethovens, the Nashes or the Newtons. Not even after college or medical school, residency, or fellowship do we even become masters. But 10,000 hours and all these years of training, it's a good start. And if you cultivate your practice deliberately, if you seek out feedback, if you find the reward in your accomplishments, you'll only get better. That's all we got for another week on the show. I hope you enjoyed it. For more information, I definitely recommend you read Kay Anders Erickson's book, Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And I put a link to this on the blog. Our show today was produced by me, Jim Siegler, a podcast novice, nowhere near my 10,000 hours. Music this week was expertly composed by Mozart and played by Brendan Kinsella. And the remaining talented artists include John Watts, Mike Durek, and Lee Rosevere. I'm Jim Siegler, and I'll talk to you again soon.